0: You are listening to the IFH Podcast Network. For more amazing filmmaking and screenwriting podcasts, just go to ifhpodcastnetwork.com. Welcome to the Bulletproof Screenwriting Podcast, episode number 308. You fail only if you stop writing. Ray Bradbury.
1: Broadcasting from a dark, windowless room in Hollywood
0: when we really should be working on that next draft. It's the Bulletproof Screenwriting Podcast, showing you the craft and business of screenwriting while teaching you how to make your screenplay bulletproof. And here's your host, Alex Ferrari. Welcome, welcome to another episode of the Bulletproof Screenwriting Podcast. I am your humble host, Alex Ferrari. Now, today's show is sponsored by Bulletproof Script Coverage. Now, unlike other script coverage services, Scott Free, Warner Brothers, The Blacklist, and many, many more. So if you need your screenplay or TV script covered by professional readers, head on over to CoverMyScreenplay.com. Now, today we go inside the mind of screenwriter Randall Jansen. Now, Randall is the writer of The Doors, Mask of Zorro, And he worked on Tales from the Crypt, HBO, legendary HBO series, among many other projects in the course of his amazing career. Now, the interview with Randall originally aired on the Film Trooper podcast, and Scott over there did an amazing, in-depth interview with Randall. Enjoy this episode with guest host Scott McMahon.
2: We are at the Highland Stillhouse in Oregon City. In Oregon City. So Oregon City used to be the... Um, the original capital of Oregon
1: before uh, they moved to Salem. But Oregon City,
2: was it sort of the last city or the city established at the end of the Oregon Trail? That
1: that is correct. And it was also auspicious in that it was um, settled by a a guy who bailed out of the Hudson's Bay Company uh, in the fur trade, uh, Dr. John McLaughlin, and settled down um, and put a, a, a trading post right at the foot of the Willamette River Falls here, which oh. was the site of a magnificent uh, Native American metropolis and had been for thousands, probably thousands of years, uh, and he just came and planted his his, his uh, trading post right there at the right in the midst of it, really? and took a uh, a Native American woman for a wife, I believe. Um, <laughs> his biography is or is his story is one of the things that's on my list to really read about, but it's a fascinating story. But this was back in the 1840s, I believe. Oh, so it wasn't... Wow.
2: Okay. So, and, I mean, when I think about it, it's like, uh, what was the Oregon Trail was
1: early 1800s, wasn't it? Yeah, it started in the 18... Uh, right, really in the 1840s, you know, oh, once, so, okay. once Oregon, the, the Oregon Territory was established and they the word got out of the very fertile farmland you know, right. potential of it, it started creating the, the migration west. You know, it's funny. My I went on a field trip with my daughter.
2: They went to uh, the Foster Farms over in Oregon City. It was mm-hmm. one of the first like farms outposts for all the um, tra- um, you know pioneers coming in from uh, the Oregon Trail. Yeah. And Foster, he uh, was successful starting up like a general store on, in Boston or something like that. And once he saw that Oregon Territory was opening up, he decided not to take the Oregon Trail. He took a ship with his family, and he took his business and decided to open up another store over here in Oregon. Hmm. But he took the route of going down the Atlantic all the way down past um, the tip of Chile— you know, down there, in this, um, the the Pacific, coming all the way up to Pacific. So he sure. never he took yeah. that route all the way uh, instead of taking the, the wagon train. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So sure. he established an option. So he established um, the farm and like the outposts of where people came through. Had, um, uh, Mountain Hood, right. So, and they would help actually carve out some roads and passages because when I think people when the pioneers came to Oregon, either they were going to take the Columbia River all the way you know down, or some would take try to get through Mountain Hood. Mm-hmm. So, those who try to venture and get through Mountain Hood, they had to, um, you know, they got stuck or something like that. So Foster and his people end up you know helping them out, helping out a lot of pioneers and developing a road there. Mm-hmm. So. They they, he had this outpost and, and he had the general store there he had the farm he had like a little you know uh, like mini what do you call it, lodges or inns you know where people could stay so it was like mm-hmm. it was the first site of civilization for a lot of pioneers after his long journey wow. and he just made a killing yeah. and so they have yeah. this farm that you can go to huh. it's an educational farm but it's still we're walking through the house you know seeing the stuff they use seeing the farm hmm. seeing the barn and it was just oh, that's it made all, yeah. it was it allowed all the kids to like you know really hands on experience what it could have, would have been like as a um, you know a pioneer on the Oregon Trail. Wow! So it was a little bit of history that I had no idea about. Sure. but I was like, wow, that's
1: pretty cool. Sure. But they I have, have yeah. they have a uh, uh, museum over here for the Oregon Trail Museum, hmm. which I believe has been shut down now because of lack of funding because of the budget cuts and everything oh. else. But uh, that was. Um, one of the things I, I've been amused actually since I moved up here from California that uh, you know, no. No. that with the Oregon Trail um, that was the the overland route that a lot of uh, people who were heading to the California Gold Rush took. Oh, really? You know? Yeah. And so at one point, you know, you you have uh, the trail diverts, you know, and you go. Go to California, and search for gold, or you go to Oregon and grow, right, th- grow right. things. You know, and I think that was a very interesting dichotomy there of where you know it, it, it sort of it really underscores the differences between California and Oregon. Now that I is look that at funny it. because that's sort of the what exists today. Well, I'm, that's my you know. point. That's my point yeah. exactly. So mm. I'm a little slow today. <laughs> that's, that's all right, Scott. We'll just have another have another beer there, and you'll you'll catch up. it um,
2: <laughs> was a great segue. So. One of the things I wanted to do with you is like I one of my favorite podcasts is the Creative Screenwriting um, Podcast um, hosted by Jeff Goldsmith. Mm -hmm. And he's now since left as senior editor of Creative creative Screenwriting Magazine. Mm -hmm. And uh, he started his own podcast called uh, Q&A, Question and Answer with Jeff Goldsmith. Because he's been really instrumental in in holding these uh, free screenings down in Los Angeles of just different movies. And at the end of every, these Free screenings at the end of every movie. He would have um, the screenwriters there to oh. like talk for like an hour and a half about the movie, their their experience, and all that kind of stuff. Wow, what a concept! Actually, having the writer. Oh, I know, I know, <laughs> and he's he's great, and I, I really enjoy like his style of interviewing, and mm-hmm. you know, and I could tell like sometimes he's polite to like some of the people or some of the work that they've done, but inside, I could tell like that comic book geek in him wants to go what were you thinking? You know, that kind of thing. (laughs) But he's still very cordial about it. Sure. He actually happened to be uh, in college, a roommate of Dave Jaffe. Dave Jaffe was the creator of God of War. And oh. uh, some of the twisted metal series, who I I worked with at Sony for many years. So when I met up with Jeff, you know, I introduced myself via that way. So right. he was very cool, but he's very busy. And and again, for anybody who wants to check out his stuff, definitely check out um, Q and A with Jeff Goldsmith or some of the past stuff on Creative Screenwriting, Screenwriting Magazine. But anyway, this is my chance to do my really horrible impersonation of Jeff interviewing you, Randall, as if like we just finished a screening and, you know, and and we had this big audience, but right now we're just, (laughs) we have this cool little pub. It's funny because, side note, is I normally do my um, podcast down at Mars Irish Pub. Right. Yeah. I was going to suggest that for you as well. Yeah. So we go there every other week, my buddy Frederick and I, Uh and we go down and he knows everybody there. And Uh so we're, we're regulars there every, like every other Monday night. Okay. Um, but it's funny that it's an Irish pub, and here we are the, across the way in Oregon City in a Scottish Irish pub again.
1: So they will tell you it's a Scottish pub. There won't be. Perfect. There's not much in it. not much Irish here. Okay, good. No. You know, although I do see the Bank of Ireland, uh, uh, yeah, framed there over there. You know, but uh, if they had a choice, it would be. You know, basically, it's anti-English. <laughs> <laughs> and it's charming. I mean, yeah. both places
2: are just charming in this, like, old style bar. So, anybody who yeah. gets up here, you got to check out these places. Yeah. So, we have Mars, Irish Pub, and LO. Yeah. And we have the Highland
1: Still, Still, House. Still House here in Oregon City. Yeah. So which, any- which, if you're a fan of single malt scotches.
0: We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now, back to the show.
1: This has one of the best collections you will find uh, anywhere, Mm. um, in arguably even on the entire West Coast. So this the the Mick and his wife, who own the place, are huge Scotch files, and they're just uh, I have to learn more about this.
2: Yeah, I I have. I had this innate desire to want to get into
1: yeah cases more Scotch. Well, there's part of it. I I I (laughs) was. I honeymooned in, in Scotland and so that's where oh, okay. I started that's where I started <laughs> you know, acquiring the taste and so it was it was uh it was more of a you were acquiring. You weren't just because now you're married, you were just
2: drinking more. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: Well, I started well I, come, well, I come up for excuses to drink more,
2: you know. <laughs> I started drinking I used to never drink until my daughter was born. Yeah. And then yeah. I started to drink and yeah. drink a lot more. <laughs> yeah.
1: It weighs upon you heavily. So anyway. <laughs> being the parent. <laughs> so
2: I wanted to, the first question that Jeff always asks mm-hmm. ask is he always wants to know breaking in stories of like how you got started in the business or what was your like your first
1: paying job or you yeah. know, how, how, you know, yeah, how you broke in. Well, I w- I went to film school at UCLA and and at that time I entered the film school there in 1979 and you were basically thrown into a a little life raft with a bunch of other people that had the same aspirations to either be a writer, director, working in, in the film industry in one way or another.
2: And so you... Yep. Was real quick, Was that time, the late 70s, like, because I know that... This is the there, very
1: late 70s, 79, yeah, so yeah now, when so, I started.
2: But I was wondering if, like, the early 80s, was it... Um, I can't remember, was there a golden age of, like, where, where everybody wanted to go to film school? Because I know that well, there was a kind of a... Something the, in the, the 60s. The,
1: the film school sort of bonanza uh, occurred in the... Uh, I would say probably the mid 70s okay um, and and carried on all through in, into the early 80s. Yeah. Um, and that was basically because George Lucas, yeah. Steven Spielberg, Spielberg, Ron Howard, they were all, products of film school right you know francis coppola of course Apollo, you know all yeah, those guys right yeah and scorsese yes me and, and yeah, nyu yeah nyu, NYU big, of course right. and um so and that was it i mean basically we just covered the film school landscape at that time there was three places to go usc ucla and, and we'll nyu you, right and for me i had grown up in the san diego area um uh, And I couldn't afford going to SC, and NYU was just about as far removed from a Southern California (laughs) beach as possible. and I used to go with my dad, who worked for the UC system, up to see basketball games at uh, UCLA when John Wooden was coaching there. So um, that was uh, the, sort of the natural place to, okay. to go to, and it was vastly um, cheaper than SC. Right, and, right. And, and actually, what I liked about SC, that there were differences in the curriculum at that time, too, which was that if you wanted to be – um, if you if you had a very specific idea of what you wanted to do in the in the film industry, whether you wanted to be a sound editor or an editor or a, a cinematographer or a director, producer, whatever, you would go to SC because they had very clear tracks okay. on each of those okay. those specific professions. Yeah. UCLA it was much much looser, and they were kind of had this, had sort of the stigma, if you will, of, of being, of creating auteurs, <laughs> yeah, okay. um, you know, you were, you were the complete filmmaker in a sense, once you came out of UCLA. But the difference, another difference was, is that you had to fund all your own stuff <laughs> uh, after, after uh, the basic super eight class that occurred uh, when you first entered school. Uh, SC, it didn't happen. You had to, um, they funded the advanced projects, um, but you had to compete with other People to get that one or two c- uh, uh, directing positions right. that they would do. Anyone could be a director at UCLA if you had the money for it, which you. to me, it was really like the real world. Exactly. Um, much more like the real Is world. Coppola than to UCLA? Yeah, yeah. Coppola right. came to UCLA. Uh, Jim Morrison and Ray Manzarek of the Doors were there. Oh, okay. Um, you know, that was in the, that was in right, the very right. early 60s. Right. Um, you know, but uh, I mean, there, there's, you know, Paul. Um, Oh um names I knew this would happen. The names start fading, you know, from <laughs> me. Who wrote uh, Taxi Driver? Um, Schrader, and, right? And Schrader, right? Paul Schrader, thank you. I uh, went to UCLA. Um you know, I mean the the, the <laughs> list of names is very long and prominent right, that, that right. UCLA has produced and, and, and SC as well. So Do you know
2: you when know, I went to uh, so, UCSD, Uh and um, I was looking around. I went to junior college first. Uh, Went to um, Palmer College, and the only fame claim to fame we had there was that um, Phil Tippett was a mm-hmm. uh, famous visual effects mm-hmm. artist mm-hmm. Um, from the Star Wars films yep. and his you know all his stop motion. I
1: interviewed Phil when I wrote for the Carlsbad Journal back in 1976. Oh, okay, so you know, okay, great, great yeah. right?
2: So his claim to fame was that he went to that school. Right. So it was a great, you know, two-year school. You get out, sure. You, then you could transfer anywhere. And then I didn't know where to go exactly. Mm-hmm. I looked at San Francisco State. I looked at UC, USC. Mm-hmm. I looked at UCLA. Mm-hmm. For some reason, I decided of all places to go UC which probably wasn't the best choice of film school but i don't know it was nearby <laughs> and, and near near a beach <laughs> near a beach definitely yeah definitely so the funny thing was i spent a lot more time when i was there because the way they had the the film track was that everything was really dedicated towards the graduate film students right. as an undergrad you were you didn't really get a chance to get, too hands-on, knowing that now I probably should have gone to maybe like San Diego State, which is much more of a more of a vocational approach to the education. But I spent a lot of time with this graduate film student from UCLA who was doing her um, thesis or her work down in UCSD. So she had access to all the you know the editing bays, the rooms, and she's trying to finish her th- her thesis. I mean, she just needed an assistant, so I was there, and I got all this hands-on training of how to like you know cut film and. You know, Great. put all this stuff together yeah. and then she would I would go up with her um, on a regular basis to UCLA and just I was crashing courses I didn't even go to this school but I was at yeah. UCLA just sitting in go. at the firm sure. courses so uh, kind of gave me a different perspective of things maybe that's yeah, my yeah. UCLA connection. yeah
1: okay well there you go well um at that time, again, this is in the late seventies. You know, those were the three places to go. Now, right. it's the landscape is vastly different. Every almost every college has a, a film department or a media department, mm-hmm. something something like that. So, I mean, that just shows you how thing things have changed. Um, so, uh, anyway, I, w- I went through the f- the film program, and at UCLA at that time, they didn't have a, or, or the difference. There was no difference between the undergrad and the graduate oh, programs. Nice.
2: Those okay. days. <laughs> yeah, those days.
1: Um, literally in my, in my second year there, the graduate students uh, rebelled and staged True. a little um, uh, demonstration uh, and really forced the hand of the school to uh, alter the... Curriculum, in a sense, to favor grad students because basically, and, and I think they had a legitimate beef. They were competing with you know freshmen who were right. new to the or uh, new to the department uh, for uh, you know the limited amount of materials and cameras and things that we had to do their graduate films, right. and so which were really wasn't fair. So they did an overhaul of the curriculum in my like or. Uh, they they didn't do it overnight. It actually happened right after I graduated. So basically, <laughs> I benefited from having a, 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 basically had a graduate education. As an undergrad. Oh, okay. Because I, I stuck it out and went an extra year as, a, as an undergrad. Right. I, so I and they, later. Yeah.
2: Okay. And, they,
1: <laughs> and then they kicked me out and said, it's time for you to move on. Oh, really? I, yeah, I had maxed out every unit possible. But knowing that, uh, <laughs> I took every writing class I wanted to. When I first got in there, I was, I was hoping to be a director. I, that was my aspiration. Oh, okay. Like everybody else, that's what that's I wanted sweet. to do. That's what I was going to ask you. But so. you, you had to fund your own films, um, and I didn't have that kind of money, Um, you know. um, So... I realized that well, typing paper was cheap at that point, and I said, "Well, shoot, I'm just gonna I'm gonna write, and I'm gonna direct my movies on paper, and then eventually, if I get enough clout, I will be able to direct something that I write myself." So that was that was the philosophy. That hasn't happened, by the way, but <laughs> it has happened for a lot of people that I know. Um, now you wrote, yeah, so uh, you were a writer when you were younger too, like you wrote
2: well, paper as a...
1: Yeah, I mean I was, I, I started writing like as soon as I learned to write, you know, I just was, I had kind of spates where I was very prolific, third grade especially, seventh grade was also um, a big one.
0: <laughs> we'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show.
1: Uh, but I, I, I initially wanted to be a journalist. Um, oh. I, I actually wanted to be Cameron Crowe because I loved Rolling Stone and ro- loved music still when I was in high school. That that's what I was aspiring to be, was to be like a music uh, journalist right. of some sort. Um, there was a great writer for Rolling Stone at that po- yeah. point. Um, he, I think he's back now writing some stuff for them again, but named Charles M. Young, who did just some fantastic interviews with like the Sex Pistols and Kiss. And I still have those issues. Because the writing is just so, so funny and insightful and really great, and just inspired me a great deal to be, right. Um, right. to be you know. And, and this was a, the era too where Tom Wolfe was. Doing, um, you know, electric kool aid acid test on the heels of that, kind of what is known as the new journalism. Okay, uh, where it was just wasn't real cut and dry, but actually there was a great deal of reportage uh, um, going on <laughs> and and uh, um, quasi sermonizing that would be <laughs> worked in by. The likes of Charles M. Young, or um, you know, our Gonzo Hunter Thompson kind of you know people of that sort. It was a new, it was an interesting time to be in journalism, Um, and then. I I wanted to be a magazine freelance magazine writer. I thought, yeah, you know? uh, and then I realized I probably really couldn't make a whole lot of money at it. Um, but I and I had started working for my hometown newspaper in Carlsbad, California, writing uh, writing sports for them. And then in the summertime when I was out of high school, it worked into full-time work where I was doing feature articles. So I was interviewing surfers and runners. And and uh, Carlsbad was also the site of a motocross um, uh, scene out there and doing some reporting on that. It was just a lot of it – was, it was very interesting. And I learned how to interview people at an early age, which was a great thing. Then um, – I knew that I wanted to continue with writing of some sort, but uh, in my studies at school. But I just wasn't sure what kind it was. So I, I, I too went to a community college, Maricosta. Oh okay, yeah. Um, just because I was working at the at the newspaper still, and I was getting experience there, um, part time. And I thought, well, get a couple more years there experience, and then take classes and get my basic. Education out of the way, and then by that time maybe I'll know what to do. And I happened to take a a playwriting course, and that was very interesting. That opened up my eyes to dramatic writing, and I and uh, I realized that yeah, playwriting wasn't quite it for me, but screenwriting. Ooh, (laughs) that sounded very avant-garde and very cool. So uh, that's what I. Do you
2: call like? Maybe like in the first moments that you like wrote a piece or a paragraph or something there somebody else wrote and you were able to witness sort of a a positive sort of emotional response from it or it's just like a, like a one moment like you wrote something where maybe you felt good about it or somebody else' reaction to it was surprising but it, it, it you know what I mean it's just like it it made you want to keep going or go uh or want more of that or anyth- or, or feedback um, that.
1: <laughs> um yeah that's an interesting question um i wrote three scripts when i was at ucla three full-length scripts and they were pretty abysmal um <laughs> but my instructors were very supportive Mm-hmm. I got A's on them.
2: Okay. Um,
1: oh, uh, yes, yes, that's right for here. Thank you. What did they call Scottish eggs? Yeah. The Scotch eggs, Scotch eggs. Yeah. Yummy. Um, and that was initially, I think be studying and doing that, to get that kind of thumbs up from them was very positive. Okay. You know, that, that made a big impression on me. um, And then once I got out of school, to have some peers of mine to just kind of uh, comment. There's mustard right there you can dip it into. That that was positive. But nothing was as strong as getting... the kind of the endorsement of a true professional, somebody working in the business. God, I just mangled this one. This you made it a sticker. masher? <laughs> yeah, that's it's all right. There we go. Yeah, it is good.
2: <laughs> all right. All right. Mhm. Yes. What's it's funny um, get my tra- I'm getting my train's off but right now. This is really delicious. I know. So. am <laughs> sorry, we can keep don't worry about this. I pause cut this out. Okay. Mm. This, is, this is good. Oh, I know. I you. mean this. I mean, this is like your interview. Oh, so it's like <laughs> and the food.
1: <laughs> oh, yummy! Oh yeah, There's more mustard right there. Mm. Yeah, I got something this say. Yeah, so it's an egg, it's wrapped in sausage and deep fried. Mmm. It's really healthy. So, so is it a boiled egg first, and then they
2: put it into like a sausage, and they have to fry uh-huh. that? I think so. Yeah.
1: Mm. Mm, mm, mm. No. don't this um. beer I'm drinking? Yeah. You no. Know. Hmm. This is yummy. It's a great place to be in any time, but I love coming here on a when it's howling wind out and cold. Oh, and, there you go. You no.
2: Know. And. Uh, well, this place is located right by the river. Um, right, this is out the, the falls. Yeah. This the fa- like is it the Willamette Falls? Yeah, Willamette. Right, falls. so it definitely has a propensity for the wind and the weather change. So. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, before the uh, paper mill was shut down, certain fumes wafting up from from the mill <laughs> would mm. uh, sort of sweeten things. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean ah. that I mean that facetiously. <laughs> um.
2: <laughs> so, yeah. So, anyway, so can you recall, well, like, um, well, let me, let, I'll backtrack. Do you recall, like, one movie, like, a movie experience you had where you thought to yourself, that you were like moved or inspired to say, yeah, I, I want more of this. Or like for me as a kid, I remember, you know, movies were just always sort of part of just growing up. But the first time I remember seeing was sort of a, let's say a, a, a more mature non sort of spectacle movie, you know, that I realized mm-hmm. was different than mm-hmm. what I had seen before was when my parents, I think, took me to see Amadeus. Oh. Oh. You know, so I was floored by that movie because I thought to myself, I just went through something that I never thought I would be entertained by, because I thought it had to have like you know, laser guns or cowboys right. or Indians right. or aliens or spaceships sure. or explosions. Because that's you know that was my appetite. Yeah. I just that I was second nature. But once I was introduced to a film that was had none of that but engaged and, and, and captured my interest, I, it definitely changed something in me. As well as another film that I wasn't expecting to was somewhere in time with Christopher <laughs> Reeve. Because I was just yeah. thinking, oh, Superman. <laughs> But to me, I was like, what was that? And I, that that got to me. And so I remember those two films of all films that sort of changed my perspective. And then I remember having, um, when I got into college, I wasn't thinking about film. I was thinking about studying illustration and art. I went there for that, but then got sort of the film bug myself and came across, I had to take a script writing class. It was very, very cheesy, but... I remember going to the library at the time. This is before the Internet. You actually had to go to the library check out the reference books, and they had real scripts. And I remember reading Mm. Ordinary People, Mm. and I'd never seen the film. I just read the screenplay and i remember just it was just turning the page after turning the page so, cuz i just had to get through it but just having that ex- first experience of absorbing what a script looks like and, and i didn't know what all, you know all the little things meant you know what is mm-hmm. int mm-hmm. well, all that kind of stuff we started beginning to figure out little code or the language but i remember having that significant moment as well coming out of that going what did
1: i just read what did i just yeah.
2: experience I, and I, yeah. I wanted to ask you did you have anything like that
1: well, I, I did as a kid. Um, this is, I mean, going way back. We'll be right back after a
0: word from our sponsor. And now back to the show.
1: And I really would have to say that I didn't know the impact that it had on me at the time, obviously. But um, it, it's really almost now that I look back on those times and now I understand why I was so moved and influenced by, and, and this is, it goes back to when we first moved to California and my parents, um, were running uh, a beachfront motel in uh, Oceanside oh. called the Buccaneer which was um, That's at, right the Buccaneer beach you know in, in Oceanside and it, uh, it it had all these pirate motifs and everything <laughs> like that so my first five years in California after moving from Utah to are <laughs> here at the Buccaneer <laughs> motel with all the pirate motifs running around there and I used to you know run around there and have, have a lot of fun and meet a lot of different people that were staying there but they would always on the weekends we would go um my parents would take a break because we lived on the premises mm-hmm. there was no escape it. uh my parents would go to a drive-in movie out, out in oceanside and oh, that the- one and yeah. Yeah. And so the, the, uh, it's an airfield now. Yeah, yeah, it is. And the, the, the ritual was basically they would pop their own popcorn ahead of time, <laughs> put it into a big brown paper market sack. And we would, they would take a cooler full of Cragmont sodas and they would put me in PJs. I had two older brothers who were 10 and 12 years older than me. So they didn't want to, they were teenagers by this time. They didn't want to have anything to do with that. So they would just oh, stay. At home, uh, but I would go with my parents um, with them to the drive-in, and then I would be in my PJs, and they would always hope that I would fall asleep in, in the back seat. At least that was the plan. While they watched <laughs> uh, these, you know, sometimes very adult movies, and lo and behold, I never fell asleep once because I was so intrigued by what I was seeing. And I can tell you exactly what I saw. You know, I saw Bonnie and Clyde. Whoa! Whoa. Did you yeah. that? yeah. yeah. Well. I think they had intended that I mean, I'd fallen fall asleep. asleep. they had no idea, and i don't and I, they probably were they were not film savvy at all they were probably didn't have any idea what they were in store for um but uh i mean I recall. I recall very clearly um, uh, the opening frames of that, where you see, you know, the naked uh, mm-hmm. uh, Faye Dunaway and, right. her, and her butt, you know, up there on that wow. big screen. And I just my eyes got really wide, <laughs> you know, going, "Wow, this is wild!" And I was just riveted <laughs> yeah. you know, from that point. And then on it from, ends in a great funny oh, I mean, bath, which does, oh, at that time yeah. was. Oh, I mean, I, I can still recall being in the back seat and seeing my parents. Uh, visibly recoil from the one, the, after they make the one robbery and the guy comes out and try and stands in front of the car and tries to either, he's, he's got some kind of a weapon at him, but they run him down and he ends up hitting the windshield mm-hmm. and, and falling off it. My parents just like, wow, right. kind of gasping over, over the violence of that. And I was like, wow. So Bonnie and Clyde, I saw Bonnie and Clyde. I saw In the Heat of the Night. um, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner? Wow. To Sir with Love. uh, Patton with my dad. Planet of the Apes. Then my dad and I started going and seeing some of these uh, original. uh, uh, I mean, my mom stayed at home for some reason. I don't think she wanted to see Patton, but my dad did. And I saw Planet of the Apes with him. And um, these now, these are the films that I actually hearken to my uh, to my students nowadays to in teaching because i think these were this was a fantastic age of american filmmaking it was right. really from that from about 60 you, 66 to about 76 that 10 year period produced just astonishingly great american films and, it was and made by the studios made by the studios Isn't that crazy at the yeah, time yeah I'm thinking about that and and Ultimately, what killed it, of course, was Jaws, right? And the blockbuster. you know, and Blockbuster. From that point on, it, it changed everything and how the studio started doing things. Tentacle and spectacle and, films. And right. again, not not to take away from the you know the Spielbergs of the world right. and the in in the in the geeks you know the film school geeks which who basically started running the business at that point, which was great. But um, you know, prior to that, we still had uh, the Godfather's and the conversation and Chinatown and uh, one flew over the cuckoo's nest, and five easy pieces, and the last detail. The Hal Ashby's Harold and Maude, you know, making these movies these kinds of movies, and there was just nothing like it, right? You know? These, so little big man, you know, um, you know, these are these are films that I think still really uh, uh, resonate today uh, hugely. Um, and the studios have sort of lost sight of that, you know, because right. they were they were really socially conscious, uh, uh conscious. In a lot of ways, um, they pushed the envelope. You know, mm-hmm. um, and the subject matter was truly adult. The notion of, of, of like um, uh, uh, catering to demographics, the, 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 the pubescent the, the, uh, right. a boy, yeah, uh, and action figures and all that—unheard of. No way, right? No, you just you know just didn't do that. It was still the days where you had people like Robert Evans who was running, uh, um, <laughs> right. you know, Paramount. Apparently, in between, <laughs> uh, uh, the his, his, yeah, that well um, you by the know, way. <laughs> he, he was, uh, he still was somebody who had gut instincts, you know, and mm-hmm. could do things that, um, and in green lit stuff that, that you know, that we'll never see, we haven't seen stuff like that. You, you can, the only way to find it now is, you know, in the independent realms. Independent realms. You know, what do you, you know, think about.
2: You, um, there's this sort of a article I read a couple of years ago about how, like HBO and Showtime, all these the cable network or um, pay per and the, the cable um, channels are now providing that sort of fix for adult drama that um, where the movies. Theatrical movies have just become set's tentpole spectacles, Yeah, either of, you know, um, the fantasy, and, and, the, the yeah. sci-fi genre, or whatever right. it is, or then, or comedies that are, you know, the, the gross-out or, or R-rated right. or what, whatnot comedies. I mean, you, you have a little sprinkle of independence, mm-hmm. independent films, but the canvas of what's going on on the television spectrum right now where you have long form where you can develop a character at a long you know a much slower pace and, mm-hmm. and more in depth mm-hmm. is is why you're seeing like the su- success of like The Sopranos and sure. Batman and all sure. these sure. things yeah. so, so I don't know whether or not that sort of fulfilled the, the, the yeah. niche or the need that once was supplied during the, the late 60s mid 60s in the 70s for what the studios were supplying
1: you know what I mean now it's just got fragmented I, I don't know that's sort of a yeah, I. I mean, nowadays everything has gotten fragmented. It's it's really broken down. I mean, we once we entered the digital age, right? Everything became fragmented, and that's what digitizing analog does. You know, it breaks things down into these little in, into yeah. these little bits. You know, this whether it's a sound bite or it's a, you know, it's a bit of information, um, and that's sort of its job in in one way. So we we we've. But we've lost a lot, you know, right. in, in, uh, in in that. At the same time, um, you know, it's just it's just changed. Uh, these are they're, they're, this is part of a larger conversation that we'll, we'll right. get into here. That the benefits and the curses of the digital the digital world now and digital culture. But uh, um, yeah, I, in answer to your question, I, I would say yes, indeed. HBO, Showtime, yeah. AMC, running Mad right. Men and stuff. They are filling a niche now where so many of us are, have a thirst yeah, yeah, yeah. for those great adult dramas, right. You know, right. that, that deal with touchy material. Mm-hmm. Um, um, not so it's not necessarily high concept material, but it's really important material. Um, right. You know, I mean, for example, uh, HBO recently doing the, they did the the you don't know Jack you know the Jack Kevorkian right. story. I knew nothing really about Kevorkian other than just seeing the headlines always about him from that. But you know Pacino really owned that role, and Barry Levinson you know came in and directed it, and it was a really it was a really compelling piece of piece of work. But there was no way a studio would make that wake that movie. It would right. have it have to be HBO, and of course HBO loves to flaunt the fact that only. HBO can do do it, you know, and so, so I I think it's great. Um, but you know, again, HBO is part of a larger conglomerate mega monster that they too have to answer to someone, uh, if not, they're in not only their ratings, but you know, it's a corporation.
0: We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show.
1: And yeah. so you know to find truly independent n- stuff you might have to even go further out into the margins mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. And then, but comparatively still to the main the main studios and the three major networks that we're used to, it's pretty and still pretty very uh, uh, controversial and exciting stuff right they do so.
2: let me get back to do you remember like the first time you read a finished script that got you...
1: Like, turned on, like, oh, I can do this. Well, I don't necessarily recall reading a script and going gaga over it. I, right. I recall seeing movies and going just like, oh, crap, that's what I want to write. That's, you know, and, and that, that's what I want to do um so we have to remember you know as a screenplay is a is a is only a stepping stone to the final right the final piece of art you know that it is and it's hard it's hard to admit that as writers uh, <laughs> but uh, we do have to remind ourselves if you're a screenwriter that it's a it's a way station <laughs> to the ultimate the, the final product the ultimate vision of, right okay so so again, in, you know, I would look at a script and I was like, okay, all right. That's, that's okay. But it's the movie that really inspired me and it's still the movies that really inspire me now. Um, um, I don't get overly excited about reading scripts per se. Um, I, you know, I have to, I just, I want to see the movie, you know, so, so, in. So great movies make me want to write great scripts, and but it's always interesting and instructive to look at the scripts that have become great movies, right? And to see that they that they are not perfect, um, that sometimes the, they're far from it. Right. Um, for example, uh, well, whenever you you let's say you go to a bookstore and you'll find a. a the screenplay of a certain movie right there right. that that's been published. Now it's usually the, the, the shooting script that they'll, um, publish, you know, and so they'll have scene numbers and everything like exactly. that. That's anytime there, there are scene numbers on there, you know, that's a very late draft. It's something that they probably, you know, it was right. the shooting draft or close to it. If they were numbering scenes, um, Years ago, Frank Darabont, who wrote and directed the Shawshank Redemption, uh, published a version of Shawshank that was not the shooting draft. It was a book w- that I think included the early draft of the script and then uh, and then the shooting draft, something like that. And I'm mad at myself for I never picked that up and and bought oh, it, but I remember thumbing through it. But Frank had the courage to uh, to go ahead and and print uh, an earlier draft of it, and the thing was a mess. It was <laughs> there all there was a full of strikeouts and crossed out stuff and notes and the margins and things like that and that's what a real script looks like right, right. You, know, you know so beware to anyone out there who's considering writing scripts and they think that that has to be all perfect that's just not the case you know a screenplay is um, it cannot be chiseled in stone it really yeah. can't it, um, it 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 has it is a living breathing entity and it will ebb and flow it will inhale it will exhale um it will do things you don't expect sometimes you have to make alterations due to weather to cranky actors to the whims of a studio or a star or director or whatever for good or for worse or whatever these are these are just the things that it's constantly in a state of flux and will be until the the film is shot edited and screen before a paying audience, you know, that's, that's you know, and that, and that's the way it is. And you have to understand that. So you can't be overly precious with it. Right. Um, right. you know, and just think, um, I mean, if you're starting out and you're trying to write a a, 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 a great writing sample, of course you want to make it as good as you can possibly be. Cause you want to get your best foot forward. And you want to show people what you're capable of. Right. But once you are working and or in that business, you have, to know, you have to suck it up, man, and just know that this thing is going to get mangled <laughs> and trundled under by the Hollywood machine sometimes, um, and, and even in the independent realms, it doesn't matter, because um, there was still, things are going to be constantly changing, because the universe is just throwing you change-ups all the time, you know? Okay, it's raining, we're supposed to shoot a, sunny, uh, a scene under sun today in, in blazing heat, um, okay, the bar is more crowded than than we expected to have our, you know, the scene. Podcast, where we're gonna, yeah, right. yeah, yeah, no, yeah. <laughs> That's all good. You know, I mean, these are yeah. great mics. <laughs> you know, I mean, these are things where you just constantly you have to think on your feet and you have to be sort of flexible in terms of, so as storytellers too, you have to have the acuity of mind and the flexibility to say, okay, that doesn't work. I'm, I can switch this, I can do it here, and I'm like shuffle this around and we'll make that work. And right. Make it, and we'll will we'll fit it for the occasion.
2: When you, you know, write, so. do you feel like sometimes I've heard the expression or heard things where sometimes writers discover the story? Like it's sitting uh, up there in a cloud of, of years or of, of moments of inspiration that are just sort of permeating where they start picking it up. Like it just starts trickling down and they start... You know, like almost invisible ink, like it starts revealing itself—the story and the shape that, even though your your intention might not have been there originally, right. but as you as it like you said ebbs mm-hmm. and flows and evolves, you're discovering it. It's almost as you just have to be in the right sort of mental space or capacity to grab hold of it and 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 sort of um, let it, I guess, like, again, yeah, let it evolve. Yeah. And I don't know if. Um, Oh, yeah. Oh, this is good. Yeah, I'm good. This is good stuff. Okay. So I was wondering if, um, so like when you're, so you're in college, you were taking the writing, the screenwriting class, I guess, and getting feedback from your professors. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, do you remember like sort of the first um, permeation of like the, I- the germ of the idea for your first full length story that you were like, you know what? This would make this would make a good movie, and I think I got a you know you've heard uh, writers or what's that term?
1: I got a beat on it, I got a beat on it. Yeah. Well, yeah. There's you bring up a couple of points, but. Just specifically to to me, um, as I mentioned before, when I was at UCLA, I wrote three scripts that were completely uncommercial. They were just they were bad, you know. I wrote a you know sprawling period piece and a couple other just not not good you know uh, pieces of work. Um, and then I graduated, and I knew that I had to. Um, in order to get somewhere you know to get a, get ahead in the business I had to make a conscious effort to write something commercial you know, just to get on the map. Right. I can be artful and 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 write arty movies later on. You know, but I really need to get it on the get on the map first and get get try to make a living, out of. Because at that point, I was right. li- I was working in the mailroom of the Academy of Motion Pictures Arts and Sciences, and I and I, you know, I just uh, which was a great job actually, but because um, it allowed me a lot of time to write during right. the day. But yeah, I, I had to. Um, I couldn't stay there for the rest of my life. Right. So, um, so I said, okay, I'm going to write something commercial and, tr- and write something that could actually get made. You know, for a relatively low sum of money. So at that time, which that translated to write a horror film. Right. Okay, So then, well, okay, how do you write a horror film? Or, uh, or, or even at that time, it's like, oh, God, everything's been done already. Right? <laughs> right. You know? So I was really looking to do something uh, different. Um, and so... What I wrote, uh, yeah. I wrote a script in that summer um, called Slaughter Alley, which was about a haunted highway or haunted, a stretch of road, a rural road that was haunted by the ghost of a hot rodder who had been killed on it back in 1962. Right. Right. And so he races up and down it in the middle of the night um, in his 57 Chevy Bel Air, you know, running people off the road and claiming souls. And uh, <laughs> yeah. I mean,
2: as, you, as you're explaining this, I can yeah. completely hear the twangy guitar right now. Oh, yeah. Oh, it was. It, I mean, oh, that's yeah, Link Ray,
1: you know, the cramps. I mean, it was very music inspired in that right. sense, because it, you know, just like those great big Detroit steel iconic cars, you know, mm-hmm. from the you know, from the late 50s and 60s all the muscle car era and stuff um you uh, you know you hear the that that big guitar sound as well the ventures and you know all those eddie cochran and all these yeah. these the the rockabilly sound and Let's, stuff um
2: is it eddie rebels no eddie um they did rebel rouser or he was oh, just a guitar yeah, artist yeah. but eddie something but anyway yeah almost like a more of a punk version of that
1: well
0: we'll be right back after a word from our sponsor
1: Uh, what what was interesting simultaneous with this for me was that I had I was in LA staying in LA after I graduated and was really caught up in the music scene in Los Angeles at that point which was getting swept um, with the real real kind of I don't know what to call it a renaissance of of music Uh, but it was it was the punk rock thing that was at the core of it and the hardcore specifically was taking over and really having a profound influence on everything it was basically taking a Flamethrower to everything, right, right, um, and just burning it down. So you had, and and that was led by Black Flag and mm-hmm. the Descendants, and um, uh, which oh, are still you know.
2: relevant today. Oh, sure, sure, still you know, and the,
1: the Dead Kennedys up in San Francisco, right. and the, you yeah. know, uh, they, they, there was Social D right. down in Orange County and, and stuff. Southern um, California punk so yeah. Right. Um, and to me, it had a huge influence. On me, on a number of levels, specifically, you know, just creatively, how you attack things. Um, and they strip it down. There was no pretension. You just went out and you did it and you made it work. And you did it with passion and really with an attitude. And uh, there was just something elementally bitching about it. And oh, man, it just was uh, incredible. So I. I was witnessing a lot of this. And then at the same time, um, with with the hardcore stuff, there was the uh, sort of the um, art-damaged bands that were doing things like this. There were bands like Savage Republic and the Fibonaccis and Wall of Voodoo even that were heavily influenced by film. Right, and so they were doing a lot of like soundtrack stuff. Wall of Voodoo used to do a medley of uh, Sergio Leone movies, uh, I mean, uh, soundtracks, So you know the Good, and Bad, and the Ugly, right. and Hang 'em High. They would they would do this in concert, and it was just like wow. And that had that big twangy yeah. guitar, and it was just like wow. These are this is really really now amazing you, stuff. You, um, speaking of Wall of Voodoo,
2: yeah, you. Um, the lead um, the front man for- yeah Ball Stan the- Ridgeway yeah
1: now, did you become friends with him working yes. on a project yeah or because- well just a quick aside there I, I was um, after I wrote Slaughter Rally uh, I wanted to write a murder mystery and what I was doing my my notion for it was to have uh, it was a murder mystery that was set in the punk rock underground of LA and it it was about a, hard, a hardcore kid who was accused of killing someone, and who had been apprehended, and then his public defender was like a like a hippie, a liberal, real liberal hippie, who had to you know defend this kid. And they were, I was very interested in just the opposing right. sensibilities right. kind of thing, you know. And so I started doing all this um, uh, quote unquote research, you know, in the in the music scene at the time. And and uh, going to see all these different shows, and and I made contact with a number of bands. I just reached out to them one time or another and say, "Hey, could I'm doing this? Would you mind if I come to a rehearsal and see what you guys do and everything. And everybody was really cool. You know, the Minutemen was one of those bands, and and uh, and stuff. And so. Um, the script didn't pan out. I, I just it, it, it just never quite got over the hump for it. Um, yeah, but uh, I made all these contacts with all these bands and yeah, had very, very very good friends, and so that's that's what led then to getting doing some music videos for them and whatever. One of the bands that I really that were very welcoming to me was a band called the Fibonacci's, and mm-hmm. the Fibonacci's had uh, Artie Farty and Ready to Party as the LA <laughs> Weekly described them. Um, the Fibonacci's were. Uh, for Walla Voodoo at one time, and they knew Stan Ridgway very much. And so one time I was at Club Lingerie, and uh, I forget who was playing, but it wasn't the Fibs. But I was with the keyboardist of the Fibs, John Dentino, and Stan Ridgway and his wife came in. Um, and I said, oh, God, you know, John, can you introduce me to Stan? I said, I'm a big fan, and I really loved... The first time I saw them on stage, I was just like, oh, wow, these guys just completely especially Stan, just captured a lot right, of right. how my, that sort of eclectic approach to, to everything, anything and everything. And he said, sure. So I met Stan and we talked and, um, I told him I, you know, wall of voodoo was actually a big influence in writing slaughter rally for right, me. And he right. said, Oh, send me the script. I'd love to, you know, love to read it. And I said, okay. So I did. And, uh, a couple weeks later, I, I got a postcard. He actually mailed me a postcard and said, I read your script. I really like it. I'm going to call you in a couple of days with a plan. (laughs) Stan is always scheming. He's always got something working up with a plan. But basically, that started a friendship that still continues today. That's so cool. And and ironically, his manager, the eventual manager, when he went solo— was my wife's older brother. <laughs> um, but I, I even before I started dating her, yeah, I knew Chris, but I didn't know he was related to Kate when we how, first met. It was just crazy. really some, so Stan, Stan, and Chris—they both argue. They, they they like to take credit for introducing us. Interesting. Well, you're like, out, but, but it sounds like it was just already in the. It was already in the, in the works, works. It was right. a pretty <laughs> yeah yeah. But um, uh, I was going to add w- one of the things that intrigued me about the Music scene at that time, especially in the rockabilly circle that oh, you would yeah. see, was that when the Blasters were playing, mm-hmm. and, and there were There's a number. Yeah, there were a number of bands that were you know there was the stray cats that were the real big they commercial kind of broke r- out, but there was, yeah there was some other of it. the blasters ones. were the big the ones in the LA scene but there were there were some other los lobos was really kind of a rockabilly influence and mm-hmm. all that. But, but anyway they would bring out these these crowds that you would see them come up and they pull up in their their vintage cars and these guys would come out in their pompadours and their and their jeans and t-shirt and their their cuffed jeans and their cowboy right. boots or whatever and they, and then they would have their their Girlfriends and the poodle skirts and them, and uh, the Betty Page kind of you know hair and and all of it's that.
2: Funny it's funny because it's that scene is like it's in like a greaser scene by like the, the right. cool skirt like you said it's it's not like it's not like a happy Days cutie it's it's a little bit edgier it was a, it, you with it now right. it's like tattoos everywhere but right
1: granted it was a little edgier then mm-hmm. but it still struck me I was still rather amused by it because to me it, it, it they, they still struck me as kind of like the posers you know <laughs> because right. there had been the real the real guys oh. That's me. Thank you.
2: Okay, hey, we're back. We just took a little dinner break. But listen, we were talking about Slaughter Alley. Right. Which, by the way, so it was like one of your first scripts. Yes. This is my
1: first attempt to write something commercial, yes.
2: But that story is dear to your heart because we've been working on a little bit launching your site, SlaughterAlley.com. Correct. Now... Just to let you know, I'm going to take another crack at that map. I think because I've oh, learned okay. since since we met last year, uh-huh. I've learned so much about like how to you know make some websites, how to do just my job. Recently, I've just right. been working in Flash lately, so oh, and, like okay. all this other yeah, stuff. Yeah. I'm like, oh my gosh, I think I can go back and like fix what I kind of. Oh, okay. Attempt to do, but anyway, that's in the back burner. But one of these days, as things get cleared up. I think I have a a way that I can make that thing launch. Oh, that's so, great! That's great. But again, it, that's just my interest of like learning stuff like that. And and it each year I, I get more and more knowledge, and it's like, oh wait, I can apply this now. So sure, sure. Anyway, so was, you write Slatter Alley, right? And you have two other ones now. During the process of like writing these scripts, and you were trying to make it something commercially. Uh, Um, was there any moments in there where you felt like, I don't know, like you felt your groove? Like, I know that sometimes I write stuff, like it's a lot of times it's painful, but sometimes you get these magic moments where you just feel like when when it's completed or something or like, wow, you know, I did it or I could see this or something like that. Yeah.
1: Um, yeah.
2: Like, the question is, where do you find your enjoyment in the writing? Because if you've well, done it so long, you obviously yeah. there must be some grain of, um
1: Well, it, Slaughter Alley was was fun to write, and I've and I've done multiple drafts of it over the years. And it uh, looks like I'm going to be doing another one here, maybe sh- very soon, because <laughs> um, I've got some interest in it yet again. Um... <clears throat> It's the script that refuses to die. It. Uh, it's. It, this is what I was saying that you know scripts are alive and breathing, and this is uh, some kind of like a, a monster that just lurks in the primordial slime somewhere and that every now and then somebody keeps coming back and coming back to right. it and saying, "Wow!" Isn't that, you isn't know, that
2: but, like the story of like uh, Lawrence Kazin, when his, one of her early scripts, The Bodyguard, and Costner? We'll be right back after a word
0: from our sponsor. now, back to the show.
2: You just saw it on a Mm -hmm. shelf. Something like one of his early, early scripts. And he said, I'll grab that. And they made that. But it was, you know, things like those stories where they take, they've just been around for so long. Yeah.
1: You know, I mean, look, the the lesson I've learned from it is that nothing is ever dead in Hollywood. Mm -hmm. Um, It's just uh, you put it in a drawer. For a while, and then, you know, six months, a year later, bring it back out and show it around again. Um, that's if it's a spec script, but.
2: Right. Well, then again, um, even that now it's like leaded in, um, bled into the actual finished films with what Lucas has done with his Star Wars films. Yeah. And I just read somewhere the new Blu ray release. Right. He added some more like dialogue to Darth Vader and Return of the <laughs> Jedi where he like screams no. Like during the uh, death scene of like yeah. the emperor, or something. And so fans are like again, like, what the hell are you doing? Wow. So anyway, so yeah. Even well. in the film form,
1: it has life and it breathes. And sure, <laughs> sure, yeah. And that's interesting now. That that it's come to that where it's so except uh, uh, easy and accessible mm-hmm. to be able to get to make you know slight alterations nip and tucks here and there and all that i mean that's the that doesn't surprise me it's it goes back to the i think it was ezra ezra pound who said uh, uh, you know nothing is a poem is never never finished. It's abandoned, uh, and uh, so I, mean, I think that's apropos for any kind of art. You know, you just, uh, including scripts. At some point, you just gotta abandon it because it's n- <laughs> it's never quite done. It will always be a work in progress. You've got to make a T shirt of that <laughs> and have like those
2: ready for like those writer conferences and stuff like that. Yeah, I never thought of that. That's actually I mean, pretty good. Um, We've seen these like uh, cute like shirts like BustaTees
1: dot com somewhere. Right, they have right. some Really funny things, but anyway, yeah. yeah.
2: I think that's a great, great little say. So what,
1: what? Like nothing it's is ever finished. It's like, abandoned on the just back. It's
2: just something like abandon it. Oh. So like this, you know, and they give like the little web, you know like a website in the back something to like t-shirts that are. Specific to that market <laughs> right. of writers, but yeah. people like would want to like walk by and goes, "What does that mean? Abandon it?" Because then it strikes yeah. up our conversation, like you right, just sure. enough, like what the hell is that that term yeah. or that phrase yeah. means?
1: Yeah, so yeah, that's anyway, interesting. Um, well, anyway, uh, uh, kind of back to the to the question. Um, my was it the
2: inspiration? Or, well, just you were like when you are like like working I, and yeah. you have these moments of like where you just feel like you are like you are the shit. Like you're like, you know, what I mean? yeah. like you feel like you're like, Oh my gosh, I'm a genius.
1: But, or sometimes you don't, you know? well, I, 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 I think if you ever start thinking thoughts like that, you're, Do- you're really asking <laughs> for it. You're doomed. You know, um, that's the day you really start worrying. <laughs> I really think I had the good fortune one time to meet, uh, David Lean you know, director oh, wow. of La- Lawrence of Arabia and stuff. And, uh, Uh, a friend of mine was assisting his uh, restoration of Lawrence of Arabia and I was uh, she knew that I was a big fan and she uh, arranged for me to meet him at uh, and sneak in on a screening of it that Spielberg and a few other people were there and so he came back and shook my hand there afterwards. But she told me later that he had told her this story about when he was directing Lawrence of Arabia. And the day came for him to shoot the scene where, very late in the movie, where Lawrence is leading um, uh, uh, the the Arabs on the... on. Uh, cutting a swath through the Turkish lines and heading straight towards Damascus. And then he has to make a tactical choice of either wipe out and slaughter this Turkish column that had just had raped and pillaged a village, Mm -hmm. an Arabic village, or move on to Damascus in greater glory. And the, 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 the smart, tactical thing to do. But Lawrence opts, succumbs to the thing of where he goes and massacres the Turkish column, right? And sort of satiates his, uh, his, his need for bloodletting in a way. And, and, uh, lean told her that the day that they filmed that scene, he drove the, the limo came and got him at his hotel. And then they drove the hour and a half out to the, to the location or wherever it was (laughs) lean got out of the car and looked at, you know, the hundreds of extras all in uniform and costume, you know, waiting, waiting for his his first command, you know. And he looked at all these people, cast and crew, just looking at him. And he got struck with the with diarrhea, just <laughs> immediately had to jump back into the car and, and told the the chauffeurs to just take me back to the hotel, took him back to the hotel And he camped out in the bathroom for two or three hours, I guess, or whatever, and then uh, um, uh, finally got enough courage up to go back out to the scene and direct it. But he didn't. The the point was, he didn't have any idea how to direct that scene, and he was so struck with with fear and insecurity that you know he was crapping in his pants i mean he just was literally i mean he just got struck with it. and so he said uh, he said to my friend jude that uh you know that just goes to show you it can hit anyone anytime right. you know it's just it's it's always when you're when you're when you're putting yourself out there there's a there's a great risk there that you're that you're right, taking right. you're overcoming a great amount of fear there or or you you're embracing the fear or you're crossing over you're taking these big risks and stuff and So it takes great effort to, to do it. But he said somebody like the implication was somebody like him, who's got all these accolades and stuff like that. He's sometimes they just don't know how to do it. They're scared. They're scared too. You know, I am. Thank you. Um, and so, so I always thought that was, that, that was a great story. I felt very privileged to have heard that, you know, secondhand, right. You know, um, Uh, and, and, and so anyway, back to what we were talking about, you you know, the, the times where you're really starting to feel cocky and say, damn, I'm good. Right. Right. Um, is, uh, you know, that's where you, you could be into a little bit of trouble. My best, probably arguably my best writing is probably stuff that I was mortified that I wrote, you know, that I was scared. I was scared really to pass on because I was afraid of the reaction it would get that people would just think, what are you thinking? Are you out of your mind? For God's sakes, we're paying you all this money to write this dreck. You know, you pretentious, you know, son of a bitch or, you know, whatever, art damaged, uh, you know, kind of geek, Uh, you know, all these, all, you know, all these thoughts run through your mind. I mean, it's just, You know, racing. Your your mind races with a lot of irrational, irrational stuff sometimes. But um, I think that, and and again, fear and insecurity can paralyze you. Right. When you're, when you're working. But the key thing is to have enough of it that it keeps you on edge and it keeps you vigilant and keeps you always, um, uh, uh wanting to take a risk, you know, enough, just enough to where you won't settle for the ordinary and the safe, but at the same time, you know, it, you don't want You you, you just want to push yourself just just enough, you know, just so to just keep yourself on edge with it. You know, don't settle for the low hanging fruit if you can. Yeah, yeah. And that that is, I think, a really you know a really valuable lesson. When when you start feeling like you're dialing it in, Mm -hmm. and oh, I can do this behind my back, you know, then I think you're kind of losing something. You're losing a passion. You're losing um, you're losing the healthy fear. Uh, of of your stuff, I read something recently about um, um, uh, it's 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 in a book called the, uh, I think it's in this book called the War of Art, um, hmm. that's written by uh, a novelist and screenwriter. Uh, it's the guy that wrote uh, Bagger Vance, and don't ask me his name because I couldn't summon his <laughs> name right now at the moment. But he he was quoting or or using the anecdote of um, how how actors especially famous actors choose their roles why they make the choices of it. and he noted that many actors respond to that question by saying oh he was citing uh, on the actor studio okay. inside the actor studio okay. um and he said invariably they get that answered that question how do you choose the roles that you that you do and what prompts you? And invariably, they answer, um, "It scared me." Oh, you know the good ones. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I chose because it scared me.
0: We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show.
1: So translation is that it was something I haven't done before. It right. was challenging. And I wanted to rise to the occasion. I wanted to meet that challenge. You know, I wanted to do something that I haven't done before. Right, right. You know, and go, you know, boldly go where no man has <laughs> gone before, you know, with the, be it the Starship and Enterprise or your screenplay. You know, um, I was up
2: in, uh, until 3.30 last night working because I was scared of um, not being able to um wrestle flash the program <laughs> I, i'm trying to learn this program yeah. flash and yeah. like i don't know it i'm online right. i'm learning as i'm going yeah and it's such a high learning curve uh-huh. but it's still it was a challenge and like i don't i don't feel necessarily tired because i was motivated all last night sure. because this just sheer desire of like i've got to learn this i've got to figure this out how did you how do they do this? How do they, and then just because of that desire and wanting to know mm-hmm. and then getting to get that place where you kind of break it, where just like you accomplished it, where, where you started and where you end up, it's such a far journey. But you're like, wow, I did it. I was kind of scared jumping into it because I didn't know how I was going to get, you know, where, where to start. But as you finish and you found out you could actually do something or finish a task yeah. That's always uh, you know satisfying. Yeah. So, I guess for me that's so. Now coming back to is like you have this, um, you have three scripts that you've abandoned.
1: <laughs> yes, yes,
2: yes. And well, so right, yeah. So Consciously, when, <laughs> so when was the first? What was the first gig you had that um, that was like a, where you got paid as a screenwriter? Well,
1: um, actually, I got I got paid to do a rewrite on Slaughter Alley. So what oh. what happened was I wrote it. Um, then that summer of 82, I think it was, and then uh, I gave it to a friend of mine who I had gone to film school with. Okay. Um it was actually a former roommate of mine, Richard Green, who's now a uh, very powerful agent at CAA, actually. Um, <laughs> there you go, see? There you go. And Richard had, at that time, uh, aspirations to be a producer, and so he was working um, for a true Producer, a real working producer, real working, and, producer. As a, that's, I love a guy to, named Bill Finnegan who made TV movies and such, um, as opposed to those you know who
2: are in our Hollywood. There's a lot of producers,
1: yes, <laughs> but, yes, yeah, but it's like true. a true working, yes, yes. Yeah, same exactly. Same, and you can apply that to writers and actors and all of that. (laughs) Um, um, So uh, I'm going to order another uh, pint here uh, when he comes back again, but I'm just keeping one eye on him. Um, So what happened was, um, oh, can I get a no, no, okay, but no, no. I actually I want to go for something a little redder, yeah, in the color. You 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 had a nice. Poor, you were took into someone there that's in the, earlier. Um, the Nelson O'Reilly, the Rye IPA. Oh, really? It's an IPA. Oh, it is an IPA. Is yeah. that red? Really? Yeah. Wow, wow, that's interesting. Really for something that's red, that's going to be maltier. Yeah, yeah. Um, I would recommend getting the Orkney Skull Splitter. Okay. Then, oh, that oh, the Skull Splitter. You've okay, had it I've had it, but I've <laughs> had it in the body. You have that in draft? Yeah, okay. Oh, you do. Okay. I don't want to go. I want to get stick with the draft. Then, do, do you have a the, the thistle? Yeah, yeah, they bring that. Thank you.
2: Uh, actually, can I just get some water? I just need to get oh, hydrated here.
1: Um, so, Richard, I gave the script to Richard because he said, let me let me take this to the producer I'm working for, Bill Finnegan, and um, he said, I think he might like it. Because Richard read it and really liked it and thought, wow, this is, this is cool. And so, I said, great. Um, so he took it to his boss, and... Lo and behold, the boss loved it. And they um, optioned it uh, from me, and then they. What was that feeling like? It like was that first. It's surreal. Just it's you're through the roof. You know, you're just uh, it's just an exciting, wonderful feeling, and you could just feel like, wow, I could do this the rest of my life. <laughs> do you have like <laughs> it's it, all?
2: Uh... it's uh, like a, a, a moment of. Uh, like oh, thanks. Is there like a moment of? I don't know. Where all of a sudden, like your whole future is right in front of you. Oh yeah! You're like, boom! That instance, like, oh, yeah. I'm, I'm on my way, and blah 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 blah, and all this oh, stuff. Oh yeah. Yeah. yeah,
1: yeah. You line it up right, real fast. <laughs> you, know, you, you just see it, you know, like billboards on the on the f- on the freeway. Uh, man. How is that? That's good. That's good. You want to try that? Yeah. Let me just um, give a quick sip. That looks um very frothy. Yeah, it's a, a nice head on that. Mm. So, good beer. So, the, so, so they, 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 the they optioned option. it, um, and then they sat on it for like a year, uh, for one thing or another. Um, Reality, yeah, yeah. It just, <laughs> it just it just it just took a while, and then um, I think it was that following summer they they called up and said, "We, I think we're going to get some action on this now. We're going to start rolling on it." and i think they renewed the option they optioned it for 1 year and i think they renewed the option and then then what happened was they got some money and they asked me to do a rewrite on it and they had started they were getting a director and they had uh, judd nelson and alexandra paul um, uh, cast what, what year yeah. was this this like was 84? about the 80, no so the 83 oh, so 80, this is, this is before judd nelson oh, yeah. or judd nelson yeah. all right okay well we knew who judd nelson was um, but The
2: Breakfast Club hadn't come
1: out The yet. Breakfast Club hadn't come out yet. He had done, I um, forget what he had done before that, that... Garnered a fair amount of attention, okay. so he was a cool. He was a cool actor, right? Yeah, right. We all like. Oh yeah, that's cool. Um, so what happened was, I did the rewrite. I got like five thousand dollars to do a rewrite on it. Wow. And, I, and I remember. And you didn't have
2: an agent at the time, did you?
1: Well, that okay. Quick, sorry, a, quick sorry. aside on that. There's a lot of different things. Slaughter Alley is instructional for those listening in many different ways. Okay. <laughs> this is first, the first time people love. Okay, they want to know yeah, how you got your agent. For, yeah. First of all, let me roll back. I've literally finished writing the end. On Slaughter Alley, the very first draft of it. Um, and I took, because I lived in Westwood at the time, I said, oh, I'm going to go take a walk into the village and, uh, you know, get a cup of coffee or a beer or something like that. And I felt, I felt like. Celebration. And, yeah, yeah <laughs> celebrate. So I walked into Westwood Village, which at that time still had bookstores. <laughs> and I remember going into. Um, it was like Hunter's Books that was there on Westwood Boulevard. And I walked in and prominently displayed on a case, uh, and the whole little setup as you walk in, is Stephen King's Christine, which is oh, had the yes. cover of it was... Um. Uh. The car. The right. car. You know. And basically, the grill mm-hmm. of of that. Uh, I think it was an old Chrysler. And I looked at that, and I thought, Oh no! Don't tell me. No. It's No. It can't oh. be about like. And it wasn't quite the same, but boy, it was Still, close enough. It, it was, was like, old car, oh, I right. couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it. So that that first of all, that was lesson number one, which is that you know there are like you were talking about earlier, there are ideas up. There in the cloud that right. you just sort of t- well if you don't act on the on the idea that you have somebody else is going to act on it as well right and one of my instructors at UCLA used to say that look ideas are literally out there floating around in the ether mm-hmm. and it's not uncommon at all for someone or several people to latch on to the same idea at the same time right and it's not a case of somebody ripping off someone else or anything it's just sometimes you all in you can call it the collective unconscious you can yeah. call it any synchronicity you can call it any number of things but it is a reality it happens so hear, hear my that. i'm a testament to that as well yeah okay <laughs> so my only advice in that front is that it will happen to you sooner or later mm-hmm. and uh, act on your ideas you get an impulse you get a creative impulse then act on it right away you right. know if you can you know sometimes it's just not possible and you know and sometimes Sometimes there's not quite enough of a of a an idea. <laughs> so so that was that. Then so anyway, um, I did this I did this rewrite at Slaughter Alley. They were on the fast track. They were going to head into production. Alexander Paul, Judd Nelson, starring in it. I was doing this rewrite. I finished the rewrite. I remember this very well. On Halloween, 1980. I guess it's 83 at that point. And then. Um, uh, two weeks before they were scheduled to go before cameras, the money disappeared. It evaporated. Ah, and, that and, story. And, uh, <laughs> oh, and oh, I forgot to say, we got the proverbial green light after my rewrite on it, okay? Oh. The green light. They're going forward. It's happening. Boom.
0: We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show.
1: I quit my job at the Uh, academy and I was kind of like, so long mailroom, so long (laughs) suckers, you're never gonna, you know, you're never gonna see me again, you know, except when I'm Walking up the red carpet to collect my little gold man, <laughs> <laughs> slaughter alley. <my> <laughs> <laughs> and uh, well, that's what I was saying. You know, you, just after that option, that initial payment of like, wow, I am truly a, you right. know, boom. I mean, it, it's just you're getting, you can see the billboards on that highway lined right. up all the way to the horizon. What you're going to do, you know, the old, it's all laid out for you. And so then the money is yanked two weeks before the start date. It just fell apart. I never got an answer as to. Why why it happened, and suddenly everything came to a screeching, and I mean screeching halt. Yeah. So the big payday that I was going to get once they started filming right. never happened. And so I actually had to go back to the Academy and ask, in the most humiliating uh, circumstances, ask for my old job back. Which they gave me. Oh, and, I'm sure and, they've seen it all. Uh, no, sure, yeah. <laughs> God love them. <laughs> and uh, but that taught me such a valuable lesson. You know, just such a valuable lesson. Um, at very early on, in, about the film industry, how volatile it is, and no matter how good it looks or whatever, there are there are things, there are bolts of lightning that can strike at any given moment. Um, out there that will just derail even the most seemingly the most soundest of projects. So um, uh, so just always be aware of that do not count your chickens before right. they hatch because it's just too many things can happen until an audience until your film is p- playing before an audience who has paid money to see it <laughs> in a theater you know in near you um, man. Don't, it doesn't exist. It does, it does, you know. Just keep keep knocking on wood the whole way. Just be lucky. You can even, you know, you, you, you've gotten you've gotten that far. So, um, so then in answer to the agent, um, so when they first made the offer uh, to option it, I was. Um, I had no agent. I had no representation right. at all, so and, and so I didn't know what to do. <laughs> yeah, so um, uh, through some friends of good friends of mine, um, they knew they they recommended an agent to me. They made a call to him, and this guy came in and negotiated a deal. And suddenly, and this was another valuable lesson I learned: the the figures that they were offering me directly. Were suddenly twice as high as I ultimate after the agent got into the into right. the business. So he basically negotiated a better deal for me.
2: So he got his cut. Right. So
1: he cer- certainly got his cut, but he also, you know, they stepped in and they uh, made sure that I wasn't taken advantage of. Ah, which, uh, because you, you know go. you're young and you're hungry and you think, yeah, yeah, I'll take you know take anything that they want to want to throw at you. But they, uh, this agent came in. His name was Shelly Weil, and Shelley. Came in and got that. Did a good job on that on that first deal. However, Shelley wouldn't take me on as a as a full as a, a legitimate client at his agency um, because um, they didn't represent. Well, he, as he, he, he would keep me on as what he called a pocket client, which was be kind of in his back uh, pocket. Yeah. That but, term, right? Yeah. The but I wasn't a regular client yet based on the merits of a quote unquote uh uh exploitation script. Got so it. so you know Slaughter Alley was still for him didn't merit a you know real representation yet. So so that's how – so I had – I was his pocket client for a while, and so he wasn't going to do anything for me. He would be there to negotiate a deal for me, but I wasn't going to be able to get out and meet other people and or – or move on the success of, of, or the limited success of Slaughter Alley. So what happened was I went back, I had my, took back my job at the at the mailroom, fell into a deep funk of a depression where I was like Xeroxing my face every day and because you know, <laughs> thinking, I am never going to get out of here. I'm going to die an old man in the mailroom, you know, and all, all this stuff. It was just, oh, it was so depressing. Um, and I felt I was never, I wasn't going to find anything worth writing about yeah again and so then then what happened and, and during this time i was um, going to all these punk shows and i was starting to make music videos for mm-hmm. for black flag and henry rollins and and what do you say you make music minimi. like
2: were you um
1: Cinematographer, director, part of the crew. I was uh, I, I was directing them. You nice. know, yeah. You know, so I mean, basically, I just was going to these guys. I went to the Men at Men after a show, and I said I talked to Mike Watt, the bass player, and I said, Mike, you know, I can make a. I had a couple of beers, and I said, yeah. Mike, I can make a, I can make a video for you, you guys, for like you know three hundred dollars and Mike said okay let's do it do you, and, do you recall the, any songs the, the videos that you done oh yeah it was uh, uh, for the Miniman it was uh, This Ain't No Picnic um, and then we uh, in the same session we shot we went down and they were performing live that night too we were shooting on a weekend and so we shot on a Saturday mm-hmm. and a Sunday and then they sh- they were performing Saturday night at a big punk rock show down at the Olympic Auditorium in downtown LA which used to be a, an arena for like a, you know Old wrestling right. gigs and stuff like that. It was just a concrete slab, and uh, Perfect. <laughs> so uh, we had all the camera equipment, and everything, and I had the crew, and we were all young. And I said, "Look, I'll pay everybody. You know, we'll, we'll, you guys, let's get some pizza and let's go down to the freaking show, okay. and we'll, we'll um, shoot, um, shoot What well, what'd you? Shoot? And, and we'll, and we'll shoot. Um, I said, I want to shoot. I'm doing um, uh, this. Um, uh, Ain't talking about love, which was their cover of the Van Halen. Opus, yeah, yeah. you know, Van yeah, yeah. Halen's first big hit ain't talking about love, and and when you know when Va- Van Halen performed it, uh, it's like six minutes long, right, you know, right. and then it finally climaxes with you know, hey, 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 yeah, you know, and that whole um, the Men did it in thirty seven seconds, <laughs> and basically they just took the last um, the last uh, stanza of lyrics, and then uh, you know, I've been to the edge, I stood and looked down, you know, I lost a lot of friends there, I got no time to mess around, no way, and then. Um, Hey, hey, hey! You know, hey, hey, hey! And that was it. And and they played it really fast. So I told the men and I said, let's let's do this live. You know, I mean, I'm I'm going to shoot you guys right. live performing this, but try to perform it at the tempo you remember recording it because we had no playback, really. Right. You no, know, I had a right. cassette of a song <laughs> that I was playing back for for the stuff earlier in the day, and so um, um, and they said okay, and I said do, do one other thing. The song is so short, just play it twice. <laughs> So I have time to switch camera positions because I had two cameras and I said I just want my two guys to switch, you know, angles so we can get full on coverage, right? And and he said, Sure, you know, we'll do it. So so we get down there, we get and it's this big punk show. There's like half a dozen bands on on there, but they were pretty high up in the in the order. And so we we were there and we were right on the edge of the proscenium and it had all the camera stuff in in there. And they told me where it was going to be in their set, you know. And so I said, okay. And they gave me the signal, and I said, roll the cameras. Then they started playing the song and the guys were, were were shooting. And then the song ended 37 seconds later. And then I said, great. Now we're going to switch. They just went right back into it without (laughs) any break. And I said, Mike, no, no, you know, give me a break. And and D Boone, you know, on the guitar was just, I remember him just kind of shrugging like, Oh, sorry, dude, you know, rock and roll. (laughs) So I I had, um, uh, good, my good friend, Bill Judkins was doing uh, second unit quote, Second unit, right. which was basically he had an old spring wound oh, no. Bell and Howell sixteen right, millimeter right. camera that was like the leftover from World War One or something, you know, <laughs> and uh, and Bill was right next to me, and I remember he just scrambled up onto the stage, he just clambered up there right away, and as soon as they started doing the second version, and uh, got behind them looking out at uh, the audience, nice. and got a great got a great angle. My other friend John Hart couldn't do it because the camera was too um, too big, he just yeah, couldn't get right. it up. It was an airful and so Bill got got these great shots, but the problem was Bill's camera was so old. The 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 spring on the camera as um, uh, it would get lower in the wind. It would start slowing down. Mm-hmm. So when the film starts moving slower through the aperture, you capture more action on each frame. So basically, when you project it, everything starts speeding up, it's like an old silent film. Right, you know, right. and so the last footage bits of them they're just like jumping around they look like you know buster Keaton, you know? Crazy. it was just it was crazy but once we started cutting it together it kind of added to the whole frenetic quality right. of the video and it and then we we did some in this because it was early 80s we could solarize some video and stuff right. and so we added some kind of effects to it and it's just it's i have it on my website you can you can see it. I got to check it out. Yeah, but MTV played it as the world's shortest video. It made the MTV news. I never saw it. I saw that but apparently Kurt loader introduced it as the world's shortest video at the time oh and that which is uh, something like that.
0: We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show.
1: But I, I thought was pretty cool. But um, this ain't no picnic. The one that we really did that was sort of legitimate. That that played quite a while on MTV. And and. Uh um, and, and actually a lot of that footage, all the outtakes and everything else were, uh, proved to be pretty valuable because, you know, Dee Boone, the guitarist for the Minutemen was killed in a car wreck, um, wow. late in December of that year. This is 84. Yeah. And, um, uh, yeah, you know, it's great having some really good, great images of him right. performing, although we don't have sound on, on it, but there's some really crisp stuff. And then I did another one for them. Um, no, the, yeah, later later that year' um, uh, this ain't uh, not this ain't king of the hill uh, which we shot on video at the wow. time and we had a steady cam for that we really stepped up you know <laughs> um, so um, so you did all this stuff you know? Know. so you
2: were, um, what okay. what doors are that open for you well do you do you think that um, or that you saw on top of your writing <laughs> All right, sorry, we're back. Okay, okay so, so you've done, well, making what, punk rock videos. Yeah, so what I was, of-
1: my, my idea at the time was like, okay, cool, I'm I'm, I'm getting my, some, some directing experience now doing these, these music videos, you know, and, uh, and it was, again, it was real, real shoe st- string budget it kind of punk stuff. Rock. It was totally yeah. <laughs> punk rock. Um, but SST Records was really happy with the, mm-hmm. with the, uh, the Minutemen videos. And so they started talking to me about, doing something with uh, with black flag. That was pretty deal. Yeah, yeah, it was because they were Black Flag basically ran SST. Right.
2: At this <laughs> and, time it was Henry Rollins was head of it, wasn't he?
1: No it wasn't, well well yeah uh, it wasn't the original well yeah, the, my memory's old Black Flag was always Greg Ginn. Um, okay. And and Chuck Dukowski, but then Chuck eventually left um, and just continued to sort of run SST, but but Greg Ginn started SST Records, and he was the guitarist for Black Flag. Okay, and so Henry, excuse me, was not the original. Yeah, no I mean, uh, vocalist there were several before Henry um, but he was the one that finally stepped in and became really the face of black flag because right. Henry really relished I think being the the front man there yeah. and and he was uh, you know a formidable personality um, and so who formed the circle jerks after that well uh, Chris Morris and he he would been Chris Morris was the original uh, vocalist for black flag right okay then he um, and he sang on like nervous breakdown and some of those really Really, or that that very first uh, EP 45s that they did, um, I was and, up, then, and then he went on to be, he left and to start Circle Jerks.
2: I was up at a uh, uh, Skywalker Sound a couple uh-huh. years ago, Uh-huh. and they had a project there. They had all the original masters for the Black Flag, um, you know, albums. That really, they were remastering. Oh wow! And it's. It was just classic. Look at wow. this box they were showing us, oh, like, this
1: project they were working on. I'm just that's like... That's interesting. Crazy. Black bag uh, meets Skywalker yeah. Ranch. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> wow. There's a, there's a clash of stuff right there. But... Um, <laughs> Um, and that's you know, that's another story, story working with with okay. Henry and, and and all that. But you know, by my, I was hoping that w- what this would do would would give me continued cred, mm-hmm. you know, as a director, and then my writing career would be kind of moving along simultaneously, right? You know, with this, so that eventually I would be, I could parlay it into a thing where I write something and say, okay, I want to direct this. Okay, and and hoping that somebody would give me that option, would give me that chance. Um, What happened? then was I'm back at the mailroom Right. And I'm like in a funk now because the the production <laughs> fell apart and, um, and I just didn't think I was going to get anywhere out. So like I was saying, I've seen all these punk shows and really be inspired by the music. And I, that's when I, I really r- tried to write that failed murder mystery thing mm-hmm. that fell apart. And it just, it just didn't come to come together. So I also started a record label shortly after this too, wow. but that, that, but that was a little further down the line. But, um, so anyway, still in working there, um, I ran into another old friend of mine that I'd gone to film school with, there and you go. and he said. Um, what are you doing? And I said, well, I'm, fuck, I'm licking stamps in the mailroom, dude. I've got kind of, I am like bummed. And he said, Well, whatever happened to Slaughter Alley? He said, That was a great script. And I said, I'm just sitting there on a shelf. And he said, Give it to me. He said, I'm working I'm working in the mailroom at the William Morris agency. And he said, Oh, you know, I can't tell you the crap I have to read every day. And a lot of this is by and a lot of the scripts are by people who are making a lot of money. He said that Slaughter Alley is just as good as any of the stuff that I'm reading. So let me get let me get it to a couple of young agents there that I have in mind. And I said, okay. So he did. And, um, uh, within a couple of weeks, I, I was asked to come into William Morris and I met with a couple of young agents there, uh, Rick and Carol Yumpkus were their names and they, they loved the script and they signed me. Um and uh that was a just like, boy, suddenly it was like, Oh well, yeah. being represented by people my age whereas Shelley Weill was a ah, very old right. much older guy. There you go. And now here were people that like in my age bracket speaking my language, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and they just loved it. And they said, We're gonna get you out of meetings and we'll start you know, we're gonna start finding some things for you and I said, Fantastic. So I was really emboldened by that. Um, Rick Jaffa incidentally um, left uh, a couple years or three, three, three years or four years later um, as my agent um, to become a writer himself and he just recently, he and his wife, just recently wrote Rise of the Planet of the Apes. Oh, wow. Yeah, so he's done alright. Okay. Know? and uh, yeah. yeah, But, um, but he was a he was a terrific guy and a, a terrific agent you know for me at the time and i remember meeting him the first time and he said i got to tell you i said i i got your script and i read it and i couldn't put it down he said when it was done i threw it in the air i was so happy reading a really good script this is a really awesome script i love it you know and this was just like oh god thank you hearing stuff like that right, right. from somebody really in the know yeah you know who says, oh, we're going to take this and we're going to we're going to we're going to get you some work, you know, based off of it. It was still under option with the company that uh, had, right. that, so it was tied up. They couldn't go out and try to resell it, but they said we're going to we're going to use this as a calling card for you and get you out there now and start start. Well, yeah, yeah, start you know things. So that's um, that's what. What led to my first bit of employment, which I can tell you about now, or we'll hold until next. We'll time. take it later. I think yeah. we'll wrap it up for tonight. Okay. I
2: think this is great.
1: This is this we're is better than choose. I expected. But oh, good.
2: <laughs> uh, I mean, because it's, I feel like there's so much more. There's so much more we could talk about, and I think that the uh, the audience of one, whoever's listening to this podcast. Yeah, get a real kick out of it. <laughs> okay, but um, yeah, so let's wrap it up, and then, sure, um, we'll catch up another. You know, week sure. Or so. We've kind
1: of jumped around all over the place with music, and, and yeah, but it's good. It's, it's oh, still good stuff. Oh, but let me finish a thought though, which was okay. uh, maybe you can put this back into the context that it really should have been. Okay, in. when I was earlier talking about going to these the shows and like the seeing the blasters and and a lot of this rockabilly stuff that was happening, um, they struck me all as being a little. Bit like posers, right? And I and and I I felt very acutely um, that you know there would have been a generation or two before them who were the real McCoys, if you ah, will. right. That were the real the real rockabilly guys, the guys who were sniffing glue and racing their cars (laughs) at three o'clock in the morning. And like, you know, drinking, they got a pint of slow gin in the back pocket in high school, you know, and, 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 and would rumble with a chain and a, and a tire iron. Right. And I always was thinking about, boy, it'd be really, it's amusing to, what would happen if some of those guys came and, Met up with these kind of poser, right, right. rockabilly pussies, you know, and, and really come to rumble. What would happen, you know? What would happen to these kind of posing guys who look like really tough, right, right? Uh, you know, if the real McCoys showed up one night on their doorstep. So that was kind of an impetus to start writing slaughter alley. It was Interesting. Like, really, what would happen if the past came and visited upon the future? Yeah. And how how would either hold up? You know, so, that is cool. And it, so and it's was, such a cool little subculture.
2: Um, yeah, like, um, you know, like Conan. Um, Conan O'Brien is a huge rockabilly fan. He's got his, old, his own rockabilly band, and you know, oh
1: really? I didn't know that yeah, was he, his brand of, his uh, brand, of oh, music. brand. Yeah. Oh yeah, go, really.
2: he goes sometimes on these little tours, yeah. like when well, there's a hiatus of a show. Where he and his little rockabilly band play across the you know country. Sure. So but he's got this little he's got this affinity. That's probably why his hair is a pompadour all the time or whatever.
1: Yeah, right. okay. Well that's a, that sort of explains
2: yeah. a lot. He's a Harvard yeah. guy, right. whatever he is, you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's interesting. Huh. It'd be funny if he met up with the past. No. <laughs> we'll be right back after a word from our sponsor.
1: And now
0: back to the show.
1: Well, that's kind of what I'm talking about, you know. So, okay. you know, you look at—I mean, again, it's partly our 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 fascination with people like Johnny Cash and right Carl Perkins and all those all those early guys. You know, they weren't they weren't bright, educated guys. They were tough as nails, though, and they were really they were the real deal. And uh, so, I just you know, I always just kind of wonder what would happen. What would happen? So how funny. All right, yeah. cool. Yeah. We can
2: wrap this up and then okay. we'll we'll continue another time for sure and I know I'm interested. There's so much more to talk about. So yeah. And hopefully the next time we talk, I'll, I'll mention whatever the next steps of projects are going on or, and we'll catch up on what you're doing. Yeah, there was kind of, of a
1: cluster of activity there at, at, at a period there that really, um, you know, it, it, our career in Hollywood is very streaky. It can be like, mm-hmm. a, like a hot streak in sports, you know, where if you're, if you're hot and you're, you're working it, then uh-huh. you know, work yeah. it, you know, surf that wave you know uh, like that because, yeah, yeah, you yeah. Uh, because you never know when if if another good one is going to come or not right know, right. You know, again thanks Hollywood is always throwing the change up ball at you so I'm mixing my me- my sports metaphors <laughs> I know you know I got about three or four of them in the span of a uh, two or three sentences here but I think you get the gist of what I'm talking about <laughs> <laughs> I like it
2: you lost me on the wave when I was just like, my brain started thinking about the wave okay, yeah no, that's yeah, good yeah Uh, All right,
1: cool. All right, Scott. uh, Thank you. Yeah,
2: we'll catch up later. Cool.
0: I want to thank Scott so much for doing such a great job on this episode. If you want to get links to anything we spoke about in this episode, head over to the show notes at bulletproofscreenwriting.tv forward slash 308. And if you haven't already, please head over to screenwritingpodcast.com and leave a good review and subscribe to the show. It really helps us out a lot. Thank you so much for listening, guys. As always, keep on writing no matter what. I'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to the Bulletproof Screenwriting Podcast at BulletproofScreenwriting.tv.